Amen. Cheryl, thank you. Praise Band and Emma Caroline, I'm very grateful for you. I want to encourage you to please take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of John. This morning our text will be chapter 12. We'll be reading through the end of verse 36 through verse 43. As you're turning there, just want to give you an update on how my daughter Emma is doing. We've had another good week. Uh, therapy, she's doing well. She seems to be a little bit more responsive. Uh, ever since the, her gallbladder was removed and, and continuing to move her legs and doing it on command. Uh, so we are very grateful and I want to share that praise with you as you continue to pray for Emma and for us. We just give God the glory because we know that everything we have is from Him. And so we are grateful. I direct your attention to John chapter 12. I'm going to pick up with the latter part of verse 36 and read through verse 43. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Gracious Lord, merciful Father, this morning we have praised you in song. We have offered up prayer in the song that we have sung, asking you, O Lord, to open the eyes of our heart. We have confessed, Lord, that there is no other name by which diseases are healed, by which salvation comes. And Lord, we have asked for your glory to shine upon us. Now, Father, at the preaching of your word, we submit our lives before you. Open our hearts, Father, and do your work within us that you may be glorified. Indeed, Father, open our eyes that we may perceive your glory. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, my Lord and my Savior. Amen. In many ways, the passage that we just read is a summary and a conclusion to Jesus' public ministry. Up till now, Jesus has been preaching openly, proclaiming the Word of God to the public around, but at this point, a closure happens. His public ministry stops. In chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, 
the focus is upon Jesus as he teaches his disciples personally. So this passage before us this morning serves as a conclusion to his public ministry. And the results are sad. The vast majority of the religious leaders, the people of Israel, did not believe in Jesus. It's tragic. But at the same time, we should not be surprised that his public ministry has ended like this. It's like going in to the Gospel of John, we knew at the very beginning that it would not end well. In many ways, it's, it's similar to the blockbuster movie from 1997, the Titanic. That movie that made $2.19 billion for a movie that you knew how it was going to end. I mean, when you went into it, were you thinking, I wonder if the ship's going to make it this time? You knew going into it the outcome. We begin the Gospel of John with these words. John chapter 1, verse 11. John wrote, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This passage serves as a bookend to that statement. This passage summarizes the fact that his own people rejected him, especially the religious leaders. But what this passage does is it gives us insight into why Jesus was rejected. Not only then, but now. To understand what is happening. Not only does this passage give us insight, it gives us a very strong warning regarding our response to Jesus. The first insight we gain is this, and the primary insight. There is a great danger in believing that we are in control of God's work and God's timing. There is a great danger in thinking that we are indeed masters of our own fate. This is summed up in verses 36 through 40. In fact, the very first verse that I read, the latter part of verse 36, is very curious. Jesus has just admonished the people to walk while they have the light. He says, walk in the light lest the darkness overtake you. If you walk in the darkness, you don't know where you're going. So while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. In other words, believe in Him. But look at the very next thing that He does. He says these things. Not only does Jesus depart from them, He hides Himself. You get the feeling that even if they had searched for Him, they would not have found Him because he was hidden from them. The them is not defined, but it's clear that it refers to the religious leaders that he has been speaking with. Now the question is why? Why does Jesus end his public ministry by hiding himself away from people? I think simply he's living out the truth of verses 35 through 36. He had warned them, now's the time to believe. And if there was any doubt about the imperative nature of that command, it is now when he leaves. The light is gone. and They did not believe. Once again, John shows us that we shouldn't be surprised at this. Look at verse 38. He reminds us that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah was fulfilled. Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This was fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. 
When Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed the Lord's message? The people recognized that Jesus spoke with the divine authority. They were amazed because they said, this man Jesus is not teaching like our religious leaders who rely upon the traditions behind them. No, Jesus speaks as one sent from God. Furthermore, notice what it says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord represents the power of God. The manifestation of God in mighty works. In fact, I draw your attention back to verse 37. They didn't believe, though he had done many signs before them. John refers to the miracles that Jesus did as signs because those signs were to point to his identity as the Messiah. I want you to think for just a moment everything that they saw Jesus do, or at least heard of him do. Water turned to wine. The very chemical composition of water transformed by the power of Jesus. I would remind you also that the sick were healed. They saw people who were paralyzed from birth walk. They saw people who had, been, who had lost their sight receive sight. They even saw the dead brought to life. And still they would not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Verse 39 tells why. Once again, it's shocking. In fact, in many ways, it would be very easy to skip over verse 39, but we can't do that because it's, it's the Word of God. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and He would heal them. Quoting the prophet Isaiah again. Now out of this insight that we are not masters of our own fate, we are not in control of God's work or timing, there are two truths expressed underneath that point. First is this. God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Absolutely. It is His work from beginning to end. Once again, that should not shock us. This time I want you to turn back with me to John chapter 1. John reminds us of this from the very start of his gospel. John 1, and I'll draw your attention to verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, look at the next phrase. He gave the right to become children of God. They didn't earn it. God gave them that right. That's a gift of grace. And notice he goes on in verse 13 to say, Who were born not of blood. Now here he's talking about being born again, which he will explain in chapter 3 in the conversation with Nicodemus. They were born of God, children of God, not of blood. In other words, not because of their ethnic background. They didn't have a leg up because they came from a, the lineage of Abraham at all. He goes on to say also, nor the will of the flesh. In other words, it wasn't them determining that they would be saved or of the will of man, but of God. That it was God's will and God's work that brought them into salvation. That's why the emphasis in verse 39 and verse 40 is on the work of God, not just in bringing about belief, but in bringing judgment. So while the sovereignty of God is, also, is emphasized, there's another truth we need to emphasize. That is that we are still responsible 
and accountable before God. If you look down to verses 42 through 43, we are given insight as to the, the earthly reason why they did not believe. It was fear and love. Fear of being kicked out of the synagogue's fear of man and love of the applause and the glory of others. You see this same tension of divine sovereignty and human responsibility even in Exodus. When Moses goes to preach in front of Pharaoh and his message is, let my people go, we are told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Three or four times God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, but then there's the phrase, Pharaoh hardened his heart. You might say, well, which is it? And the answer is both. If, if I could use this illustration from the world of physics. Now, I am not a physicist. I don't even think I could spell physicist. But I remember reading something by the physicist Neil Bohr's regarding light. If someone were to come and ask you, is light a wave or a particle? This is how you need to answer. Yes. Light operates as a wave, like sound does. It moves along a pattern. That's why often when light hits water, it's refracted, refracted because that wave is bent. So it travels in a predictable motion. But he also found out that light acts as a particle. It can be focused, a photon. It can be directed as a laser beam, pure, without the wave form. So light is both at the same time. Just as God is sovereign. And we are still accountable for our response to Him. It's difficult to grasp. And I think rather than grasping, at times we need to trust. Because that's what the Scripture reveals. But I must tell you, in my own walk with the Lord, I take great comfort in knowing that He is sovereign. Because the Scripture says, there's none that seek the Lord. No, not one. None are righteous. And if God was not sovereign and in inclining our hearts to seek Him, we wouldn't seek Him. Furthermore, the sovereignty of God serves as the basis for our prayers. If we pray and God is not able to move hearts, then our prayers are wasted. But the scripture teaches that the heart of man is like, like rubber in God's hands. He can bend man's heart however he so's will, so will. So I take confidence in praying before God, but also recognize our responsibility. You notice that Isaiah becomes very prevalent in this passage. Not only is the prophet quoted, verse 41 mentions Isaiah very point blank. And I think it's because Jesus' ministry in many ways followed that of Isaiah. The verses that are quoted here come from Isaiah chapter 6, the passage Nathan read earlier. Think of what Isaiah saw in that passage. The glory of God filling the temple. The seraphim surrounding the throne crying out, holy, holy, holy. And then comes the question after Isaiah had been cleansed of his sin, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. Now often we stop there. Because one, it's incredible theology of God's glory. Incredible theology of missions. But you know what we fail to read is what Isaiah's task was. Okay, Isaiah, you want to go? Go and preach to these people. You're going to hear but not believe. You're going to see but not perceive. Isaiah's message was a final line of judgment for the people of Judah. 
Jesus ends his ministry on this note because look at what he just said. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. So the proclamation of Jesus was indeed a proclamation of judgment. It is time to believe. And what does this mean for us? This great tension of God's sovereignty and responsibility, it means this. Follow Jesus while you have the opportunity. Don't delay. The Greeks had a mythological figure to describe opportunity. It was a man who had wings on his feet because opportunity would come quickly. But this figure, this male figure representing opportunity was also very bald except for one lock of hair that came out of the front of his head. And what they were trying to communicate is this. Opportunity comes quickly, so you need to grab it while it approaches because once it goes past, there's nothing to grab and it's gone. We need not presume and should not presume upon the grace of God. Is God gracious? Yes, amen. Is God merciful? Is God long-suffering? He has all those things, but understand there is also a point where God says to those who reject Him, Your will be done. We cannot presume that we are masters of our own time. The Bible says it's appointed that a man wants to die, and man knows not his days. It's very easy to sit and say, well, I'm, I've got time. Don't presume upon the patience of God. Because God is just. Also, keep this in mind. This will be the second application. Follow Jesus because He is more than just a man. He is God incarnate. Therefore, He has the authority to preach and to speak judgment. Look at verse 41. Verse 41 fascinates me. Isaiah said these things about blinding eyes, hardening hearts, seeing with their eyes but not perceiving. Why did he have the authority to say these things? Because he saw, Isaiah saw, his glory and spoke of him. Now, the nearest antecedent of his and him is Jesus. Now, I want you to think for a moment what this is saying. That in Isaiah 6, as Isaiah sees the glory of God, glory so great that the train of God's robe fills the temple, as he hears the seraphim saying, holy, 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 he is seeing Jesus. Let no one try to tell you that the divinity of Jesus was added later. John is telling us that from the very beginning, Jesus is indeed God of the flesh, God in the flesh. And because Jesus is associated with this vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6, church, whatever is true of God is true of Jesus. What that means is we need to recognize the authority with which Jesus has. Often we downplay that. We make Jesus into someone who is more manageable. Max Lucado speaks about some of the mistaken views that people have of Jesus. Some people see Jesus as just a good luck charm. They call him the, the rabbit's foot redeemer. This Jesus is pocket sized, handy, easily packaged, easily understood, easily diagrammed. You can put a picture of him on your wall, stick him in your wallet as insurance. 
You can frame him or dangle him from your rearview mirror or glue him to his dashboard. What is his specialty? Oh, the rabbit foot Jesus will get you out of a jam. Need a parking place? Rub the Redeemer. Need help on a quiz? Pull out your Redeemer's rabbit foot. No need to have a relationship. No need to love him. Just keep him in your pocket next to your four-leaf clover. For others, Jesus is not a rabbit foot redeemer. No, he's an Aladdin's lamp redeemer. New jobs, pink Cadillacs, new and improved spouses. His wish is your command. And what's more, this redeemer conveniently re-enters the lamp when you don't want him around anymore. How often do we make Jesus like that? For others, Jesus is the let's make a deal redeemer. For 52 Sundays, Jesus, I'll put on a costume, my coat and my tie, and I'll endure any sermon you throw at me if you'll just give me the grace behind door number three at the pearly gate. You understand, we cannot treat Jesus in any of those ways. He is Lord. He is God incarnate. He is the one of whom the seraphim said, Holy, holy, holy. These Jesuses I just described are not the Jesus portrayed in the Scripture. He is the sovereign God. And that means we must follow Him, not the fear of man. Verse 42 is tragic. Notice the nevertheless. Once again, it's holding in tension God's sovereignty with human responsibility because it says some of the authorities believed in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him. What was the nature of their belief? It's clear that it wasn't saving faith because, remember, Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, if you fail to confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father in heaven. Public confession of the faith accompanies a change of heart. That's why in Romans it says, believe on the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart, and confess with your mouth that He is Lord. Public confession goes hand in hand, not as a work that is done, but as an expression of true faith. The reformers described faith with three levels. The first was a, a, an acceptance of facts. I have faith that a man by the name of Jesus lived. The second was a recognition that Jesus was indeed divine. Yeah, okay, I'll believe Jesus is divine. I'll, somebody that did what he did must have been divine. But the third level was actual faith, putting it into practice, saying he must be my Redeemer. These religious authorities never did that. We're given the reason why. Fear and love. They feared what the Pharisees would do if they believed in Jesus. And they loved the applause of men. Fear and love often go hand in hand. We begin to fear Losing that which we love. That's why love of God must be supreme, for we can never lose the love of God. That's why there's no fear. But for these that are described here, they loved the applause of people. Therefore, they were afraid of losing it. I want you to think about the tragedy of living in such fear of others that you fail to place faith in Jesus. Dr. Henry Cloud, a counselor, wrote, and he painted a picture of what it would be like. This is imaginary, but it makes the point. He says, imagine that day you're standing 
before God. And the following conversation takes place. God says to you, so why didn't you take the opportunity I offered you? You respond, I really wanted to. And I knew it was your will for my life. But you know how upset Steve would have gotten if I did. It would have been awful. Now Steve is just imaginary. You know how upset Steve would have gotten if I did. God responds, you're right. Steve would have gone through the roof and would have been upset with you. And I have a meeting with Steve later in exactly three years, two months, six days, seven hours, and 33 minutes. At that time, I'll talk to Steve about his tendency to get mad at people when they did not please him. I will take care of that issue. But that's Steve's life, not yours. You are responsible for your choices. You are responsible for your decisions, decisions, and Steve is responsible for how he responded to you. But the fact that you chose to give him, give in to him is your problem. And now I want to show you the life that you gave up by living the life that other people wanted. How tragic. To lose eternal life because you wanted to live the life other people wanted you to live. It comes back to love. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We must recognize that any applause, any glory we get from man is fickle and fading. It will not last. When Jody and I lived in Texas, we did go to the rodeo some. When in Texas, do as the Texans do. So we got some boots and we'd go to the rodeo. It's fascinating to watch. I had never been to one. And I remember watching the calf roping. That's where the calf comes out of a chute and the cowboy's on a horse next to it and swinging his lariat and brings the calf down and ties the feet and then jumps up. And I noticed time after time when that cowboy would finish, of course the stands broke out in applause. But he would stand up, throw his hands in the air to signify he was done. Then he would look to his left. I asked a friend we were with, I said, What's, what are they doing? And he said, they're looking at the judge's booth. Because if they look at the judge's booth and a red flag is up, it means they faulted and the roping is disqualified. They're disqualified. And I thought, you know, it really doesn't matter how much the people around them are applauding. If the judge has said you defaulted, it doesn't matter. What does it matter if we get the glory of people but our Heavenly Father, our judge, is saying, you defaulted. This message has been heavy on my heart. Because this isn't one of those that's pleasant to preach. But it's the truth. So I ask you to consider, have you followed Jesus? And I want to ask you, if you will, to bow your head with me right now. I know during this period we are not doing an invitation as we normally do, but I want you to know there is still the opportunity for you to respond. As the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction into your life, if you have never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by repenting of your sins and making that public declaration, I ask you this morning, don't wait. 
after we dismiss today, I mean, I'm available. I know Nathan is. There are Sunday school teachers and deacons in here that, that will be glad to talk with you about following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But as I said, don't presume upon the grace and the mercies of God. Believer, you know for certain your eternal destiny, but there's also things the Lord's calling you to do that you're not obeying because of the fear of man. I ask you today to look to the judge and trust him that he will give you the strength you need to obey. Father, search our hearts. Draw us closer to you, Father. If we have presumed upon your grace, forgive us. If we have been arrogant in thinking we've got more time, forgive us, Father. And make our hearts quick to seek you. Incline our hearts towards you, Father. Give us the desire to know you, to love you, and to be publicly identified with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. For it is in his name that we pray.